Welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple, live from Chichester. Thank you for joining us. So we're coming to the end of 2021 and we thought we would go all the way back to 1921 to dig in to the fantastic slang and linguistic creations of the 1920s. It was, as you will see, Giles, I think, a really fertile time for new words and phrases. Good. That are still around today? That are still around today, Well, yes. some of them, of course, won't seem as old to me as they do to you. <laughs> because... I am a little bit older than you. Uh, I was telling the audience before we press the button that says record for our podcast that I first came to this theatre because we're giving this live podcast from the Chichester Festival Theatre in Sussex that was founded at the beginning of the 1960s by Sir Laurence Olivier. And I was a schoolboy nearby and came to all the early productions here. And I realised that 1961 is now 60 years ago. And you're going to talk about words from the 1920s that when 1961 was only 40 years yeah. before. Yeah. So this old-fashioned lingo is going to seem like sort of uh, modern jargon to me. Uh, <laughs> but let's, let's cope with it. Give, give us some examples of the kind of language you're talking about. Okay, so I think what you will mostly find is a real sense of zest and zing and a sort of fervour for life, really, because obviously this is um, a post-war period, almost post-war hedonism is what you'll feel now. Um, new dances, there was the, the Black Bottom, uh, for example, the Charleston, of course, the Camel Walk, the heebie-jeebies, which began as a dance. Hello, I I've heard of the Black Bottom. Mm. Uh, I've heard of the Charleston, I've not yeah. heard of the other two. What are the other two? Okay, so there's the Camel Walk. The Camel Walk? <laughs> Gives you the hump. Thank you. Um, Thank the heebie-jeebies. I've not heard of the heebie-jeebies either. Okay. Well, you've heard of having the heebie-jeebies. Yes. Yes. What's the origin of that? Uh, the having the heebie-jeebies, we actually don't know. It's, it's origin unknown in the dictionary, but it's just one of... You do remember all those wonderful rhyming reduplicative compounds, is what we call them. Like uh, shilly-shally, willy-nilly. Rhyming dilly. duplicative Dally, and it, it, that, yes, they're not always rhyming because with things like dilly dally, do you remember the rule of ablaut reduplication? No. Okay. No, 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 we're, we're not familiar. Some people taking A level at the back, maybe, but I'm not. <laughs> Explain okay. that to me. Well, now, the thing about my job, sorry, I appreciate I've got my back to you here, I'm sorry. Um, the thing about my job is that it is just the most brilliant gig that you can possibly find, but it involves the worst kind of terminology in terms of putting people off. So the wonderful databases that we look at all the time, which have got text messages, scholarly journals, tabloid newspapers, you know, transcripts of conversations on the street, they're called corpora. Um, what are they called? Corpora. Corpora. Plural of corpus, you know. Anyway, the ablaut reduplication rule and you know we don't have many rules in English, is, is all about sound. So this is why you don't wear flop flips, remember, or dally-dilly, or eat a cat kit, or play pong-ping. Oh, there's a reason it's flip-flops, not flop flips. Yeah, it's a sound thing. Um, mm. And uh, that is slightly involved in the heebie-jeebies thing, if there was a switch Because you're absolutely right, it should be, actually, flop flip, shouldn't it? Because it goes flop flip. It doesn't go flip flop, it goes flop flip. How intriguing. Mm. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, but it is, and the heebie-jeebies is like that. Sort of like that. I mean, that's a sort of that is a rhyming reduplicative compound. So you don't have a vowel shift in that one. Um, lots of new drinks. So yep. gimlets. We had a gimlet. 
Yes, I've heard of a gimlet. What's okay, in, what that's was in a gimlet? gin and lime juice. Gin and lime juice. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's, it, I mean, the, the gimlet, the tool, is a boring tool, isn't it? So maybe it bores into you and just knocks yeah. you over. It's a boring um, drink as well, as I recall. <laughs> cocktail bars, those were, that first mention of a cocktail bar was 1926. Hold on, was the cocktail invented in the 20s as no, well? No, so the cocktail itself, people were drinking a long time before, but the first instance of a cocktail bar that you can find in the OED is... Um, in 1926. This, do you remember, cocktail is a real etymological mystery. We don't quite know, but our nearest, nearest and best guess is that it comes from the little rooster feathers that people used to put in the fashionable drinks, literally the tail of a cockerel, not a real one, but... It's worth saying this, actually. It's constantly amazing to me how many words we can't trace back. Mm. Even the simple word, you give me often this example, is it dog? Dog. We don't know the origin, the first usage of dog, how dogs... We know about canine and hound, but we can't create the origin of dog. So similarly with cocktail. Okay. Yes, came out of nowhere. Dog. Give us some more. So uh, then personal appearance. So this was a time, as I say, of just trying to introduce some razzmatazz into life. So you will find um, the shingle, which was a very cool haircut, which I think involved various layers, hence shingles on the back. The eaten crop. Uh, as well. Can I say something? Yes. How strange that they should call a... I mean, shingles is such an unpleasant thing. What oh, kind yes. of a hairdresser would say to... <laughs> Madam, would you like the shingles? I don't think so. How strange. They should have called it herpes zoster. Herpes zoster? <laughs> yeah. Is that another name for the shingles? Yes. But these shingles that. are the roof shingles. Very yeah. good. I okay. think is the idea. Um, plus fours? Have you ever worn a pair of plus fours? In my dreams. <laughs> Okay. I have um, a fantasy life as being a character out of P.G. Woodhouse, in which I would wear plus fours. Go on. I can imagine. Why are they plus called fours. plus fours? Do you know, I actually don't know the answer to that. This, this is a time when I should be looking it up in the OED, as I would in, in the podcast. Why would they be called plus fours? Anyone here? No. I because think it's something to do with the amount of material used, because there are yeah. plus twos as well, aren't there? And then plus fours, I think it's an excess of... It's how they are shaped and cut. Billowing, billowing material. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sweatshirt, the first sweatshirt, 1929. Goodness. Yeah. Um, and T-shirt, 1920. Uh, so that's, yeah. But I think in some ways, 1920s was also the time when people really kind of embraced the idea of modernity as opposed to kind of, you know, Victorian, pre-modern Victorian ways. So you will find things like the fridge, the first fridge in 1926, which was originally spelled frig. F-R-I-G, which clearly is not great. So uh, that was the first abbreviation for a fridge. And do you know why there's a D in fridge? Tell us. Because of the incredibly popular US brand Frigidaire. And that is why people put the D in. So a fridge is an abbreviation of a refrigerator. So that's the origin of it, yes. a refrigerator. And that comes way before that the 1920s. Before. Yes. But fridges, electric fridges, were pioneered in the 1920s. That was when Frigidaire became very, very popular. And Frigidaire gives you fridge. That is... Very good. Yeah, that Go is on. the, the origin of that. The media, 1923 uh, as well. But possibly the best thing of all. If I had to ask you what invention you... Well, actually, you could do without it. It's just a faff. The zip. The zip came about in the 1920s. <sighs> yeah. And do you know why it's called the zip? No. Nope. It's because it goes zip. <laughs> it, genuinely. Is that genuinely how yes. I got his name? Yes. It's Zip. Yes. Yeah. I was lucky enough to know Dame Barbara Cartland, 
Do you remember Barbara? Do you know uh, what I mean by Barbara Where are we going Cartland? with zips on this well, one? <laughs> Barbara Cartland was a romantic novelist. And, she was uh, very pink. She, she loved the colour pink. She always wore pink. I remember going to interview her at her house in Hatfield in Hertfordshire. And it was a radio interview. And she sat in her chair like this. And just as the interview was about to begin, she leant to the floor and pressed a button. And she was suffused in pink light. She suddenly oh. looked like a, like a Christmas tree. And uh, I said, oh, I'm so sorry, Dame Barbara. This is merely a radio interview. <laughs> and she said, it's a performance all the same. And she gave a marvellous performance. But she told me that she introduced, when the zip was introduced in the 1920s, she was a 1920s figure, she thought the zips were hugely useful and wanted to have them in clothes. And she was a friend of Lord Mountbatten of Burma. Do you remember him? Louis Mountbatten. These are, I, no, no, I remember. Of, this is Prince Charles's favourite relative. Well, Prince Charles's right? great uncle. Great You're uncle, right. yeah. The uncle of the Duke of Edinburgh. Lord Mountbatten of Burma. Uh, and oh, he, yes. he pioneered the use of zip fasteners for flies, for fly buttons. In trousers, until he made them popular and fashionable, it was always buttons. Mm. I don't know why, why are they called flies? I think they're called flies because otherwise everything flies open. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. Is that for real? Yes. Flies on trousers are called flies because things might otherwise fly out unless you did them up. They used to be buttons, but from the 1930s onwards, the zip fastener was used increasingly in trousers, made fashionable first by Lord Mountbatten, who then persuaded the Prince of Wales, later ah. Edward VIII, to also have zips instead okay. of fly buttons. And that's how it became acceptable for a gentleman to have a, a zip fastener in his flies instead of buttons. Just, just showing okay. I know some Very things interesting. Too. Go on. Not related to the zip code in America, which I think is an acronym for zone implementation implementation protocol or something like ah, that. Yeah, not, not related. The zip, the zip code. The zip code. And also lots and lots of words for complete bunkum or baloney. Ah. So applesauce is one of my favourites. As I think applesauce is used apple by P.G. Woodhouse. Oh, a lot of, a lot of applesauce. What is the origin of that? I mean, I think it's genuinely just used because um, food is often used as a, as a kind of metaphor for a mishmash of stuff. So flummery used to be a type of pudding. Balderdash was a really unappetising concoction of um, alcohol, milk. I think they literally used to put a dead cockerel in there as well. Uh, I know it was horrible. That was Balderdash. So a lot of similar ideas for, you know, a whole mishmash, as I say, of food. Apple sauce, mm -hmm. bologna. Mm -hmm. That's a kind of food too, isn't it? A bologna is a sausage. That so comes from Bologna sausage, yeah. Oh, it comes from Bologna, the place? Yes. So it's a load of bologna. It means a load of Bologna sausage. Yes. Yes. Are they good? Buncombe? So Buncombe comes from, it's actually earlier, I think, and it comes from a debate in the US Congress when a politician who was representing, it was a really important debate about whether or not to admit state slavery, supporting states into the Union. So very, very serious. And I can't remember his name, but he represented Buncombe County. And he stood up and essentially he just wanted to keep the debate running and just keep talking so that, you know, he would delay a vote basically because he was pro-slavery. And he talked and he talked and he talked and all his colleagues begged him to desist and to sit down. And he said, no, I shall not. I am speaking for Buncombe County. And so Buncombe became a byword for absolute nonsense.
Buncombe County, yes. Yeah. What is that word when you speak yes. in a debate? Everyone you filibuster. Yes. Filibuster, thank filibuster. you. Filibuster. So you could be speaking Buncombe when you're filibustering. Yes. What is the origin of filibuster? Uh, filibuster, I'm going to look up, but I, I think it might come from French. Do you know, I think I might have the OED on here. Good. So you keep talking, no, no, keep, no pressure. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, I, did, I wrote a biography of the Duke of Edinburgh, and um, he, uh, because I happened to know him through a charity in which I was involved, which was his favorite charity, the National Playing Fields Association. And he had in his library a book about the Mountbatten family, which had been called Manifest Destiny, a history of the Mountbattens. And because of the way people write about the royal family, um, I opened this book and saw that the Duke of Edinburgh had corrected the title, which was Manifest Destiny, story of the Mountbatten family. He'd corrected the title, he crossed out the word uh, destiny and put Buncombe. So it read Manifest Buncombe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what he thought about people who write books about the royal family. <laughs> <laughs> um, I found it. So, Good. yes, from the French filibustier, but it was actually originally from Spanish before then, first applied to pirates who pillaged the Spanish colonies in the West Indies. And so I guess the idea was of sabotaging proceedings, so piracy of proceedings in a way, because you're taking hold, hold of it. What about hokum? Hokum. Is that a 20s word? Yeah, hokum um, began as, it's a, it's a riff on hocus pocus, which was a sham Latin, part of a sham Latin formula used by magicians in, I'm trying to get back to Oh, it's to make it sound magical. To make it sound magical. It doesn't magical. mean anything, hocus pocus. Exactly. I'm, I'm from the sooty generation, izzy wizzy, let's get busy. <laughs> but hocus pocus hocus gives focus. you hokum. Gives us hokum, yeah. exactly. Uh, so lots and lots of, of ones for Complete rubbish. Also, I mentioned alcohol. So the temperance movement obviously was coming into its prime here. So people were literally on the wagon, which was meant on the water wagon. Um, so they would go around proclaiming that they had, they were abstaining from alcohol. This but is because, to do a good little history here, this is because in the 1920 in America, in fact before then, in the, the teens of the century, prohibition was yeah. being introduced. It's actually ratified in 1920. And yeah. it grows and grows. Yes. So prohibition in every state. And that's when they have speakeasies. Speakeasies. Called a speakeasy speak for Speakeasies because you could speak freely, essentially, and ah, uh, drink at the same time. You could time. behave as you want to do in yeah. the speakeasy. Exactly. And uh, we also have bootlegged alcohol. Bootlegged is the idea is that smugglers were literally hiding alcohol down their boots. Oh. I know, it's very strange, but that's the idea of bootlegging. Back to alcohol, we have hooch. Have you ever tried hooch? Hooch! No, I, I, don't, I don't drink alcohol. I'm high oh, enough on the air I breathe in Chichester. <laughs> but no, hooch, what is the origin of hooch? Hooch, so hooch has got, it, it's a, got a lovely origin. So it's a shortening of hoochinoo, which was the name of an Alaskan, I mean, it's a corruption, the name of an Alaskan uh, people. And... When people first um, went over there, when non-Indigenous people first went over there, they just used to find all the inhabitants completely drunk. Um, and so they thought there was absolutely no point in staying here or doing any work with the people at all because they're just always falling over. And it turns out they were drinking their own illicitly made uh, local alcohol, which was incredibly potent. Um, and so Hoochinu was... Hoochinu. Hoochinu. Which I think it was Hootsnu or something in the, um, the Alaskan Indian people. So it's a, a name from an, an indigenous language. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Any more alcohol? Um, no, just those amazing cocktails that, as I say, first began to yeah, the really screwdriver. take over. 
the screwdriver, that's a orange juice and vodka, I think. Mm -hmm. um, martini, well, no, that's the name of, of a brand, isn't it? Martini. Yes. Okay. Don't get me, I'm not very good with cocktails. No, I, I, I noticed that evening. Um, <laughs> what about, is it a fall guy? I feel a fall guy is a 1920s oh, Yes, yeah, so Flicks, I think Flicks was first recorded for the cinema in uh, the 1920s. Because so of flickering the pictures. Flick, flickering pictures, yeah, and silver screen. You know, the silver screen was so-called because it had a metallic, the film had a metallic silver coating. Um, to, to sort of improve the quality of it, so hence the silver screen. Um, so yes, a fall guy or a scapegoat, essentially. Uh, so somebody who would take the fall for you is the idea for a fall guy. Do you remember scapegoat? I know the word scapegoat, but I don't know the origin. Okay, so scapegoat, that goes, actually goes back to the Bible and it was an scapegoat. And um, essentially the custom was to take two goats and on one of the goats, all the sins of the people would be um, figuratively laid upon it and um, it would be sacrificed and the other would be sent off and banished into the oh, into exile, yes. into the desert. But it escaped death, so it was the escape goat. There are stories in the Old Testament that tell of this yeah. ritual that there was. So that's what a scapegoat is. Scapegoat. And a fall guy is a 1920s phrase for a scapegoat. Yes. Right. Yes. And also, do you know, the astronaut is first mentioned in the 1920s, even though man didn't go into space until the 60s. So thanks to people predicting it and science fiction, etc., astronaut, which has got the most beautiful origin, the Greek for star sailor, sailor of the stars. Astronaut, of course. Yeah. Nought as in nautical, astro yeah. as in the stars. Yeah. So a, a sailor through the stars yeah. is an astronaut. It's an astronaut. Conceived in the 1920s, when also the robot, as a word, was introduced yes. for that play, Rossum's Universal Robots, R-U-R, by the Kapek brothers. The Kapek, the Czech, exactly. Yeah, I do remember some of the things you tell me. No, Go that's on. brilliant. Um, also, I need to tell you about... Uh, now, have you heard of this? I, I, this was quite new to me, even though I've studied BBC English and I've studied... Um, the BBC have a pronunciation unit which tells all, everybody who works within the organisation how to pronounce things. Um, so the latest COVID variant... For example, they will have said, this is exactly how you... Omicron. Omicron. I thought it should have been Epsilon, because that's the letter after Delta in the Greek alphabet. But I read today there are certain letters they're avoiding, some because they may apparently have cultural references in other languages ah. that are not comfortable. Okay. And they need to have it a letter that can be easily visualised, yeah. which is why they've jumped to Omicron and left out other letters. Because Omicron, I think, is the Greek for O. Yeah, little O, it means little O. Yeah, little so o. it's the 15th letter. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Anyway, so the BBC have this pronunciation unit, but I only recently discovered that there was, um, in the 1920s, there was something called the BBC Advisory Committee on Spoken English, and George Bernard Shaw was at its helm. So you probably know more about this, Giles, than me, not that you were there. Um, <laughs> not quite. I not did quite. know a man who knew Bernard Shaw. I just say that, in case there are some Bernard Shaw enthusiasts here, during the interval I will shake your hand, and then you'll be shaking the hand that shook the hand <laughs> that wrote St. Joan. Yeah. Oh, oh. Susie can't offer you that. No. no. <laughs> I really can't. Um, anyway, so they were tasked with coming up with a verbal style guide, so much as the pronunciation unit does now, so that was absolutely fine. And they set the standard pronunciation for things like margarine. They also came up with new words themselves. So, for example, one of the challenges was how to come up with the equivalent of a wireless listener 
for people who were watching the television. And lots of suggestions came up, like um, a seer, um, an opsy viewer, a, a, a tele viewer, and lots and lots of suggestions. Anyway, they chose tele viewer, T-E-L-E -E, viewer, but the tele eventually dropped off and they simply called them viewer. But that, that was their... That's intriguing because when the radio, the wireless arrived, people automatically said, you are a listener, you are listening to the wireless, therefore you are a listener. But when the television came along, they weren't sure what to call us. Mm. So it could have been Telecina or... Yeah, could have been... Telecia. Telecia. Yeah. And, but it ended up as Televiewer and then it becomes viewer. the viewer. Simply. We the viewers. I mean, we just don't really think about that. But the no. other thing that they did is they got rid of the gyratory circus, which became the roundabout. Uh, so that was a BBC decision. But this is the thing... Hold on. I, the okay. Roundabouts, because this is so extraordinary, you've got to absorb it. Roundabouts were to be called gyratory circuses. They were already called gyratory circuses for a very long time. So you go left to the gyratory circus. Yes. No wonder it didn't catch on. <laughs> and the BBC, somebody at the BBC pronunciation unit said, that won't do, we must come up with something simpler. Yes, but they went a bit rogue. So this was a surprise for me. They, they decided that traffic lights should be called stop and goes. Uh, for example, they decided that Christmas festivities should be called Eulery. Eulery? Eulery. Uh, and that Christmas itself might be called Eulery. And clearly, people at the BBC, the bosses, got a little bit worried because they thought, actually, you're just going to embarrass us with this. You've got to stop. So it was abandoned. It was, it was just split up the committee because they were actually becoming power-hungry and power-happy. What this was, the French have a council, don't they? Academy, yeah. An academy yeah. that decides what words are acceptable. And this yeah. was like creating an English version of it. Yeah. And they got somebody like Bernard Shaw, who had lots of opinions and was probably the most famous writer of English, yeah. though an Irishman. Lady uh, Cynthia Asquith. Lady well. Cynthia Asquith. Yeah. Yeah. And they all sat on this committee having these grand ideas and then were abandoned. I'm not surprised. Eulery. That would not catch on. How no. That's wonderful. It's strange, isn't it? So yes, but at this time, this is to, to show that I suppose um, motor cars, etc., were becoming increasingly popular, which is why they needed to think about things like traffic lights and gyratory circuses, etc. But yeah, they gave us the roundabout. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Do you know what you are, Susie Dent, as far as the actress is concerned? You're the real McCoy. Oh. And I say that because I have a feeling that that could be... Is it, a, is it an 1880s expression or is it later than no, that? No, that is this decade. The real McCoy yeah. is only 100 years old? Yeah. And was there a real McCoy? Well, this is another one where there are lots and lots of people contesting for the right to be the real McCoy. So there was a boxer called Kid McCoy who um, had, he was so successful that there were lots of imitations of him up and down the land, and so he called himself the real, Kid the Real McCoy. But there was also a whiskey distillers, a whiskey makers in Scotland called Mackay, and they had an advertising slogan which was, a drop of the real Mackay, that's terrible, um, but the real Mackay was what was on the ad, 
and we think that everything was kind of conflated in people's minds and the real Mackay became the real McCoy. That still exists, doesn't it? White and Mackay. It's I still don't know. A, yeah, that? I think it is okay. still, still a whiskey. Okay. Uh, so the real McCoy was really the what, real Mackay. The real Mackay. The, meaning the original whiskey. The one and meaning only. The real Mackay. Exactly. Okay. There's one more before we invite questions and contributions from the crowd, because I think this does come from 100 years ago. Blowing a raspberry. <laughs> Blowing a raspberry is actually earlier. Oh. Um, but I think this was a suggestion by our producer, Lawrence, just because he's tickled by this one. Does anyone know where blowing a raspberry comes from? Yes. Cockney rhyming. Thank you, sir. You can meet Susie in the interval. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to answer anymore if you threaten that. Yes, blowing a raspberry, raspberry tart, fart. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the sound you make. That's blowing a raspberry. Do that again, it's quite exciting. You usually do it on a baby's tummy, don't you? I can't do it. That doesn't really sound like a raspberry tart, but. Anyway. It does, it sounds a bit. Okay. It's lovely. Well done. So that's the origin of blowing a raspberry. Yeah. And, and when did it start? When did. When did people... I think that is, is at least 20 years earlier. And in fact, speakeasies we've talked about, speakeasies were 1880. 1881 is the first instance of a speakeasy. So they were around too, but obviously during Prohibition. Uh, really came to the fore. Good. Mm. Well, there, that's the sort of, I mean, I think Susie Dent is amazing that she knows things that the rest of us don't know. No, I, I the challenge for us is to remember. Uh, no, it is. I think we probably will remember about um, blowing a raspberry. Because, can, I, can I just uh, yes. throw in a couple more? Real, please. That I had on my list, because I thought, you, you know, it's just always incredible how, uh, well, often how recent things are, but also how, um, how old things are. So celeb, for example, the first mention of celeb was just before um, 1920, it was 1919. But also recycling, 1926. Microclimate as well, 1925. So oh, we have been around for a very, nothing, very long time. Put that in your pipe, Greta. Um, I mean, honestly. Uh, have you, do you know what this is, Susie? No. It's a microwave. <laughs> you, can, you can see the level at which we're both playing this. I mean, she's at the high end, but somebody's got to be down in the gutter. Um, that's lovely. Yeah. Any, any more? It is nice. No, just, I mean, I mentioned this, this sort of sci-fi thing. So to go with astronaut, you have a rocket ship and a space suit as well. So people were incredibly prescient in these days. Um, so, yeah, I just, but I also love the fact that this was a time of exuberance. And in fact, we have an email from a listener mm -hmm. who wants to know about one particular thing. And that's the bee's knees. Oh, this is a listener who's written to us in, from the Netherlands. They were born in the Netherlands. The great joy of something rhymes with purple, so-called, because something does rhyme with purple. Oh, not me. Um, herple. Herple means to walk with a limp. <laughs> yes. We have listeners, purple people all over the world. And this person was born in the Netherlands, but now lives in London. Yeah, and, Anke, von, ups... Anke, Anke van Lenteren. Yeah. Great name. And what is their question? Okay. As a beekeeper, says Anka, I am really intrigued by expressions with the word bee in them. I've asked many American friends for the origin of spelling bee, for instance, and have never had a satisfactory answer. Oh. Um, she's thinking of quilting bees and knitting bees and also the bee's niece. She'd love to know after years and years of wondering. Good. That's Anka, who is now living in Sweden. What is the answer? I love the way you said that. Sweden? Sweden. Um, so the answer, well, first of all, the, the sewing bee... 
That is purely because, and I think Anka probably had an inkling of this, it's because of the, the bees' very social nature. So it is basically the idea of people coming together um, in, a, in a colony, if you like, or in a, you know, just as a get-together. So it's the social aspect. Um, to go in a bee line is because of the insect's tendency to go straight in a straight line from you know, wherever it's gathering its food back um, to its hive. And the bee's knees, um, that, as I say, this is this was the time when, uh, particularly in North America, people were incredibly creative when it comes to describing what is the acme of excellence. So the bee's knees, no one knows why it's the bee's knees. It was originally used in English to mean something incredibly small, because what could be smaller than a bee's knee? But a bit like the dog's bollocks, actually, and I'm sorry to use that word again. Um, <laughs> It kind of shifted its meaning. So the dog's bollocks, do you remember? Began is a printer's mark. Printer's mark for the colon dash, because that's what it looks like. Um, and hold on, hold on. Let's, we're not as quick do, as you. Visualise it, everybody. Uh, <laughs> the dog's bollocks, a colon and dash. a dash. Oh, a colon and a dash. Yes, I see what you mean. Mm. Yes. Um, Depends how you look at it, of course. Uh, whether your dog is lying on its side or standing upright. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Very good. OK. Um, but because of this formula, it then shifted its meaning to mean something that was absolutely excellent. And the same with the bee's knees. And there were so many others that sadly haven't made it. Well, the cat's whiskers have. And actually, there's one suggestion that the whiskers are the um, aerials, the sort of small um, aerials that you will find on early transmitters that were called the cat's whiskers. But you also had the kipper's knickers, um, the elephant's adenoids, um, and a whole raft of similar formulations. But the bee's knees, um, as I say, began much earlier than, than the 20s to mean something very, very tiny, but in the 20s meant the best of all. Does anybody have a, a, a question that they would like to put to Susie, or indeed to me, about words from the 1920s, or indeed words from this part of the world? We're here in Sussex. Uh, feel free to for call out at this stage. Oh, yes, hello. Who? Grockle. Grockle, oh, are you grockle. clearing your throat or is this a question? Uh, I think the lady is simply saying grockle. Yes, grockle. for a tourist. I thought you called them emmets here, no? You call them grockles, okay. The idea of a grockle, I think, began in a comic book. Um, again, if you look it up, it will say origin unknown, but I think it, uh, it was the name of characters in a comic. But what, and I think they must have been quite annoying because I know Grockle is, it's kind of semi-affectionate, isn't it? My, my dad lives in South Devon and will sort of say, oh, all the Grockles coming here again. Whereas in Cornwall, I think it's the Emmets. But yes, that's the best guess that we have is, it, is that it comes from a comic. But I was going to ask what you call bumblebees here or even ladybirds, because I think, do you have Bishibani bee here? No. No. <laughs> okay, no, fair enough. An emphatic no, no, okay. no, no. Um, or wood lice, do you have a nice thing for wood lice? Cheesy logs. I just, it's so fascinating how different uh, dialects collect around certain things. And for some reason, wood lice attract a whole lexicon. Wood lice? Yes. And what Cheesy are they Cheesy logs, chuggy pigs. Um, I mean, all sorts of fascinating words. Grammar, grammar sows. But pigs come into it very, very often. Um, but did you say cheesy logs? Yes, Granny Gruja. I've heard that as well. What, what was that one? Repeat it for Granny Gruja. Granny Gruja. Yeah. There's some very, very amazing words uh, for terms for, for wood lice. Have you got three special words for us? I do. Because what we do on the podcast every week, those of you who are new to it, is that in order to... It pays to increase your word power. Language is power. The greater your vocabulary, 
the better life you have. That's our view. And every week, Susie introduces us to three interesting words. And you've got three to give us. And what's the idea? What's the game you want to play with us? People have already submitted their own definition of the trio Ooh. of words Ooh. that I had posted. The first one was petitos or petitos. Petitos? Yes. How do you spell that? So that is petit, as in French for small, and then toes. T-O-E-S, petitos. Um, and we have had... Oh. Um, a, a lovely, well, lots and lots of lovely entries, but these, these are the three that we picked. So this is from Paul Newsham from um, Fairham. When a domestic animal's toes swell to resemble breasts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're okay. not coming here again. Okay, this, go on. This, I apologise for the next one as well. This is for Carolyn Sims Evans from Angmering. Angmering is lovely. Miniature silk frilly undergarments you put in each individual toe before a sock or tights. <laughs> Petit toes. Oh, okay. I rather like that to make it more comfortable. Little sort of undergarments, then you pull your socks or tights on afterwards. Yeah. Petit toes. Petit toes. I like um, that. This one, I think, this is, I think, my favourite. This is from Paul Goddard. Uh, from Crowborough. This word describes the first thing that a midwife sees during a breech birth. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's charming. I love that. And given the state of midwifery in this country, they're having to import French midwives now. <laughs> it's marvellous. I'll tell you what they are, really. Uh, this they is are, for real. What are they? This is for real. Pigs trotters served as a delicacy. Petit so, toes are pig's trotter serves is, the I'm a celebrity all over again. Um, so I'm definitely with Paul's version there. Um, the next word was a skimmington. A skimmington. A skimmington. Okay, Stephen Clark from Fairham. A small, close-minded, miserly, fat-free town. <laughs> That's brilliant. I like that. Um, this is also <laughs> great. Craig, is it Gershater? Yeah. Yes, huh? yep. um, from Chichester itself. The Prime Minister, uh, Skimmington, is the Prime Minister's approach to detailed analysis or delicate diplomacy. <laughs> okay, and this is from Paul Comerford, Comerford uh, from Nutbourne. The ancient Celtic sport of underarm skimming of frozen cowpats over dew ponds in the winter solstice <laughs> gave rise to its centre being based in a new town of Skimmington. Pursuers of this sport were hence known as Skimmingtons. That's oh, brilliant. So These are brilliant. What a clever audience. They are. Um, uh, what do you reckon? I think it's got to be the PM, no? I well, well, well what's the truth? Oh, that's true. It's not the truth. This is a really strange one. It was actually a procession that was used to make an example of a nagging wife. So... Explain. Well, that's as much as I know. A procession? It's a really obscure word, yes. A, a procession that was used to humiliate a wife. Oh, so like, like, a, a like putting in a scolding truel. A scold, exactly. You would take her out on a skimmington. On a skimmington. Ooh. Not very nice. But I love, I just to tell you again, the Prime Minister's approach to detailed analysis or delicate diplomacy is brilliant. Um, and finally, um, a gasconade. A gasconade? Yes. Okay. Right, gasconade. This is from Cordulaxel Murring from Emsworth. To go and panic by fuel. 
Very good. <laughs> this is from Craig, again, uh, Craig Gershitter from Chichester. The aftermath of consuming excessive Brussels sprouts for Christmas dinner. <laughs> um, and this is from Jess Golf from Waterlooville. What amazing town names. When Gaston leans into his staggering hubris and attempts to serenade Belle with a song on how great he is, that is a Gasconade, oh. uh, which is brilliant. Gosh, I don't know, which one should we go for? Well, we're going to go for the one that's real. It's simply also because it's got a great name. It's, it just would make the most amazing anagram. Cordulaxel, if I pronounce that properly. Yeah, Cordulaxel Murring from Endsworth to go and panic by fuel. I think that's a Gasconade. Yeah, very good. Yeah, well yeah, done. Well done. Um, the real, the truth um, is, and again, you might want to make this have a topical reference if you wanted to, extravagant boasting and strutting about. Oh, I like yes, that. That's a Gasconade. A Gasconade. Well, it sounds like it, a Gasconade. Exactly. Extravagant boasting and strutting. Was that, was that all three? Have we done three? That is three. Well done. So it's time for my poem. It's by Lee Hunt, who lived quite a while ago, 1784 to 1859. And I bet you know this poem, but it's an enchanting poem. And if you want to learn a poem by heart, this is a good one to start with because it's quite short. Jenny, Jenny, and there's several people I signed books for earlier. I put Jenny, because that was their name. And for some of the books, people asked me when I signed it, not to put my own name, but to put J.K. Rowling, because it might be worth more on eBay. <laughs> we're not proud, that's the point I'm making. But this is a lovely poem. Jenny kissed me when we met, jumping from the chair she sat in. Time, you thief, who love to get sweets into your list, put that in. Say I'm weary, say I'm sad, say that health and wealth have missed me. Say I'm growing old, but add, Jenny kissed me. Aww.